0: Snuff Production. Hello, welcome to The Briefing. It's Thursday, the 19th of August. I'm Tom Tilley, joined by Katrina Blowers. How are you doing, Katrina?
1: Oh, I'm fabulous today. How are you?
0: Yeah, not too bad. I um, wanted to do a bit of a, a request to our listeners. If you're a fan of The Briefing, um, look, we've been going for about 18 months now and it's it's been a lot of fun and it's going pretty well, but we'd love to get the word out about the podcast to more people.
1: Yeah. So the best way to do that is you can jump on, rate and review us just on that Apple app. So if you've got a moment, it will literally take just a second. We would love you to do that.
0: Yeah. Or you can also share one of your favorite briefing episodes on an Insta story or post um, where you're listening to the briefing on an Insta story and just share Mm. it with your friends that you're a listener of the briefing. Um, We would really love that.
1: So in today's episode, Australia, Australian soldiers tell us how they're feeling about what's happened in Kabul this week.
0: You start to have
2: this really dangerous identity crisis because that purpose and those values that you aligned yourself and committed yourself to wholeheartedly starts to be removed and starts to become clouded and starts to be revealed as not being the true and authentic purpose that inspired you to your own personal greatness with
0: others. It's such a tough time for Aussie soldiers. That's Heston Russell. He's a special forces major who did four tours. 41 people lost their lives in combat and hundreds more took their own lives as a result of their service and the PTSD when they got back. So we'll find out what it's been like for them watching the pictures unfold in Afghanistan this week. First, here are all the big stories of today, starting with the latest from the effort to get people out of Afghanistan.
1: Well, the government has promised more flights are on the way to evacuate people from Kabul after chaos in the Afghan capital has meant that only 26 people got on that first RAAF flight out of the country yesterday.
0: This was the first of what will be many flights. Kabul's a dangerous place and we've got Australians operating in a very dangerous environment. The Prime Minister, Scott Morrison, Afghan Australians and Afghans with a visa to Australia later told media that many of them couldn't get to the airport because of Taliban checkpoints and the chaotic scenes of crowds and gunfire. Uh, Those who did make it on the plane were taken to an Australian base in the United Arab Emirates uh, where they'll be flown home to Australia.
1: So Scott Morrison has said we will take 3,000 Afghan refugees, but they're not actually above our overall annual intake of 13,750. They'll displace refugees from other countries. So that total remains the same, Tom.
0: Yeah. And then after promising a relatively modest intake compared to other countries like the UK and Canada. The Prime Minister went on to warn people not to try and come by boat.
1: The UK has promised to take around 20,000 refugees. They're going to give women and children priority over the next five years. Um, And as you mentioned, Tommy, in our briefing today, we speak to a former Defence Force legal officer who has some really strong views about the way our government is handling that refugee situation in Afghanistan. It's really fascinating
0: stuff. And the former Prime Minister John Howard's defended his decision to send Australian troops to fight in Afghanistan, saying it was worth it because it stopped terrorism in the country.
3: The great fear of the United States, of Australia and of the West after the 11th of September, that there would be other attacks out of Afghanistan. That has not materialised. The mission has not been a failure.
1: So John Howard was speaking on the ABC 7.30 there. Howard also said the West's withdrawal from Afghanistan this year had been too hasty. So that was a fairly big admission, I thought. And the Taliban were still a very dangerous force.
0: And the New South Wales government has defended its lockdown measures, even after the state recorded 633 new cases yesterday.
1: We know that our lockdown is extremely harsh. We have had and continue to have the right settings in place. But unfortunately, too many people continue to do the wrong thing. So that's the New South Wales Premier Gladys Berejiklian speaking there. My heart just sank, you know, when I saw those numbers come through. I'm in Queensland, but I just couldn't believe it. And I'm hearing that with this current rate of growth, some people are predicting that cases are tracking to hit 2,000 within just a few weeks.
0: Well, we're not any signs that they're going down and everyone in Sydney is scratching their heads as to how these case numbers keep growing um, so substantially, especially... um, Given 80 or 90% of them are in those LGAs, 12 of them have really strict measures, um, mm. it's it's really hard to get your head around. Also big fears in western New South Wales. Uh, we spoke a little bit about this yesterday in towns from Dubbo and, and further west. Reports have come out that there was an indigenous funeral in Wilcannia, um, which was attended by more than 100 people. It's seen COVID transmission there and there are fears that it may be a major seeding event.
1: Meanwhile, in Victoria, authorities are urging anyone who employed a sex worker around St Kilda in recent days to get tested because a sex worker in that area has tested positive.
0: So sex work is actually not on the authorised uh, work list in Victoria, um, which Mm. is not surprising. So not sure what was happening there or if anyone will be getting fined for that. Uh, Victoria had 24 new cases yesterday. 18 were in ISO, so means six weren't. Um, authorities are worried that COVID is spreading undetected in the south-east of the city, uh, with 15 mystery cases around St Kilda.
3: We are exceptionally concerned about what we don't know yet in that area. There are clearly a number of chains of transmission that we do not yet have full pictures of.
1: And that's the Victorian COVID testing commander, Jerome Weimar.
0: And the trial of R. Kelly is underway in New York. In an opening statement, a federal prosecutor said this is not a case about a celebrity who likes to party a lot. This case is about a predator.
1: Yeah, so there's been a huge cloud hanging over the R&B star for, for years, decades now. Um, there was a Netflix documentary done about him most recently. He's accused of racketeering, sexual abuse of young girls and bribery. He's repeatedly denied those charges, though. He actually could face several decades in prison if he's convicted.
0: All right, right after this message, uh, Aussie soldiers respond to what's happened in Afghanistan.
1: Hey, Katrina Blowers here with you. Well, most of us have watched the events in Afghanistan unfolding this week with a real sense of horror and helplessness. But what's it been like for the Aussie soldiers who are on the ground there for so many years, who've seen everything they worked for collapse?
0: Yeah, there are around 40,000 Australians that were deployed to Afghanistan since the conflict began 20 years ago. 41 of them lost their lives in duty And at least 400 have died by suicide.
1: Yeah, huge numbers. Some of those soldiers who've served and who watched their mates die over there have been outspoken in what they say is a shameful end to a cause they can no longer stand up and say they believe in. And they're worried it could lead to even more veteran suicides.
0: Yeah, one of the most outspoken is Heston Russell. He's a retired major who served in Afghanistan with the 2nd Commando Regiment. He did four tours there, targeting the Taliban, targeting local terrorists and destroying the heroin crops that provided so much of their funding. Heston, thank you for joining us. What was it like for you watching those same images we all saw? People scrambling to get on planes, falling off them, the Taliban taking over. How did you feel and where do you think this withdrawal went wrong?
2: I have an absolute emotive response to that, like every person who has a heart and a soul does, particularly having been there on the ground. The Afghan people are not people to act with such despair. They are a hardened nation of generations of war fighting and conflict, and for them to be in, in such a level of despair is really heart-wrenching and knowing that firsthand and coupled with the fact that, like I've said a few times this week, you know, I have a, a sister, I have a mother, we all come from a mother Um, knowing what those women are going back to and knowing that they are going back to that oppression that uh, was otherwise normal for them until we came and we gave them hope. If there's anything worse than not having hope, it's giving false hope. And where we went wrong with this is when we announced that we were going to be out by September 11. For all those, and I'm not meaning to suck eggs here, but touching on strategy, strategy is not a timeline. Saying you're going to be out by September 11 is not strategy. That's a timeline. Strategy then requires you to put in specific actions and outcomes along that timeline to make sure you are measuring your achievements with what's actually going on the ground. So a proper withdrawal strategy is, hey, we want to be out and we are going to plan to be out by September 11, but these conditions need to be set along the way. This is how we're going to get rid of all of our equipment, ammunition, ordnance that we're now seeing the Taliban more equipped, better equipped and better facilitated with weaponry than when we first came there. This is the position the government of Afghanistan needs to be in. This is the strength of their security forces. We provided a timeline for the Taliban to provide their strategy, which they've implemented ahead of timeline. We take on a moral responsibility when we deploy Australian personnel to any theatre of war and we take on an additional moral obligation to those who we recruit, train, pay um, to support us on the ground, like our interpreters, like our locally employed civilians, like our security contract staff, who should not still be there with us already having withdrawn our troops, should have been a part of our withdrawal strategy to get, as we do and as I had to do on every mission, every last person off the ground and onto those helicopters or onto those airplanes before you take that final step off that field of battle or off that patch of land before you uh, get yourself out of there.
1: You were saying that um, to now be able to stand up and say that it was worth it is no longer something that you're capable of doing. You, you wrote that in an opinion piece that was published in the Daily Telegraph this week. You've called it a shameful end. How do you kind of reconcile that? How do you, and how do you, what sort of conversations are you having with other veterans?
2: It was worth it for those at the tactical and operational level, like myself, who got to see the modern day manifestation of the ANZAC spirit in action by our service men and women there on the ground in combat, supporting each other, supporting the Afghan people. For those listening to really realise that uh, we are currently at the commencement of a Royal Commission into Defence and Veteran Suicide. And this comes from generations worth of moral injury. And what you're seeing right now is moral trauma that causes that injury. And it comes from a place whereby we all sign up to serve. We sign up to serve our nation. And if that comes with deploying overseas, then that comes with what may. But in signing up to service, we are signing up to a blank check to whatever our country makes us and wants us to do because we believe in our country and we believe in those values that our country represents. And we start to then invest our identity in that. And particularly for so many of us that deployed to Afghanistan, Afghanistan essentially was the final initiation for so many of us into that complete identity that is someone in service, because we got to experience combat. Uh, like myself, I got to lead my team in combat. I got to help save lives and take the fight to bullies. And I got to truly achieve that self actualization and complete realisation of those Australian values that I still hold so true today. And so much of that was the best version of me in those circumstances. And when here and now we see um, what can only be described as un-Australian actions, like leaving those that worked with us behind by watching what we knew was coming unfold, by watching this humanitarian disaster unfold in front of us, and by watching our our leaders, whose job it was to do their job while we did ours, stand up and make statements um, and grandstand and beat their chest, as opposed to understanding the actual emotion and what was going on on the ground and what is going on the ground. That's when you start to have this really dangerous identity crisis because that purpose and those values that you aligned yourself and committed yourself to wholeheartedly starts to be removed and starts to become clouded and starts to be revealed as not being the true and authentic purpose that inspired you to your own personal greatness with others.
0: Do you worry this will trigger more veteran suicides?
2: I worry this triggers more mental health decline. This is triggering and this is trauma and that's why we need to have these conversations now. I myself have been through my own suicidal ideation last year and I know it comes from carrying too much of this internally and I don't want to add to anyone being triggered or traumatised by this and I know from so many who have reached out that it's me having these conversations with people like you and on these sort of platforms, that is actually helping people to feel like someone understands what they're going through, as opposed to political um, catchphrases yeah. and key messages. And I really do fear for that. And straight away, the number one remedy for a suicide prevention and mental health support is connecting with each other. Yep. Especially at a time when the entire Australian mental health system is so overloaded, with more children calling Lifeline than ever in our history community, connection, not waiting for clinical support, but having, this is my mental fitness session today, conversations with you and speaking with people who understand where you've been from, what is going on. I've been speaking with Vietnam veterans who are telling me all these stories about the fall of Saigon, about how they felt dejected and this moral injury and moral trauma when they came back. And it's just connecting with each other and speaking that as weird as it sounds, is the best mental fitness that you can actually go through at this time. And it's what we all need.
0: You're absolutely right. Connection is the key and it's a great starting point to for people to feel understood and then we can take it from there.
2: That last point you just said about connection and supporting each other, that, that doesn't just go for the veteran community. That's every single person with, I think, over half of our nation in lockdown isolation and uncertainty, mm. that's what the veteran community has faced and has suffered and has caused about this Royal Commission in Defence and Veteran Suicide, mm. getting people together, getting kids back in schools, making sure that each day you're having some form of communication that connects you with someone else and makes them feel connected. That's how we can all each and every day help combat everyone's mental health decline and everyone's suicide risk let alone the veterans.
0: That was Heston Russell, um, retired major from the Commando Regiment. And Heston's right there, Katrina, that connection Mm. is the key to preventing suicide. It's actually core Mm. to the lifeline model. Um, So if that interview brought up any issues for you or anyone you know, the lifeline number is 131114.
1: Another very live issue right now is what Australia is doing to extract and resettle around 700 Afghan interpreters and officials who worked alongside Aussie troops so closely and they're now on a Taliban kill list. Our PM, Scott Morrison, hasn't given any assurances Australia will help all of them.
0: I want to talk openly to veterans that despite our best efforts, I know that support uh, won't reach all that it should. That comment from the Prime Minister has angered former Defence Legal Officer Glenn Colomitz. He's written directly to the Prime Minister about it. As a legal officer, Glenn did two rotations with the Special Operations Task Force. He worked in engaging local governors and managing Taliban prisoners, also providing legal advice, training and support. Glenn, tell us what you make of the Prime Minister's reaction to the crisis.
3: I'm really, really disappointed. We've been contacting the government for over a year now with names and trying to process our our people and... uh, having received nothing in return, no response from either the portfolio ministers or anybody, any of the departments, to hear that is really disappointing because um, we know where these people are. We have all of their information, their evidence. We were in contact with them. We have plans in place to get them to extraction points. So we we can do this and we've been offering the government to to help this. So that frustration boiled over to the point that at four o'clock this morning, I sent our list to the prime minister. So he now has our list of people, the names of each of our Afghans and their children and their wives, all 708 of them. In that correspondence, I said, uh, it's time to stop belting on about the numbers that have already come to Australia and start telling us how many numbers you're going to actually get out. And we want those numbers to include our 708.
0: So why did you make of his justification for not getting out the people that we should? Was he saying that it's just really logistically difficult or was he saying we, we don't have the resources or is, what do you put it down to? He's not making
3: those sorts of admissions, really just not explaining anything about this evacuation, relying on the usual you know security nonsense is entirely unhelpful, entirely unhelpful. And now every time he opens his mouth and says, oh, we're not going to get out as many as we want to, I drown in phone calls from veterans and from Afghan Australians and from our people in Afghanistan, our, our clients it be better if you said nothing, to be honest, I and mean, just let, let the ADF get on with their job and take out a list and give it to somebody on the ground in Afghanistan, give it to some ADF person and say, get them on board.
1: So in your opinion, the people on that list that you just mentioned, what does Australia owe to them?
3: We owe enormous moral obligations, um, but I believe we owe legal obligations. They were, as much as the government will try and avoid this, they were employees of the Australian Defence Force or the Department of Foreign Affairs and Trade. They gave years of their lives to serving our operations over there, and they've made sacrifices. And now they're facing enormous risk, and that's that's real tangible risk. They've been told, they've been contacted and told, many of them, you're going to be killed. We're, we're looking for you. We've had calls that they've been, the Taliban have been in, searching their houses back in the provinces since they've, they've escaped to Kabul now. They know they're in the frame, and we're talking people, two of these people are journos, and we know that the Taliban right now are killing journos. We know that. So there's an obligation. You don't just let these people who have helped us for so long stay there and die.
1: So that was former Defence Force legal officer Glenn Colomitz there.
0: Yeah, strong words there from Glenn, Katrina. We heard at the top of the show that the Aussie flight out of Afghanistan yesterday only got 26 people. So everyone will be watching to see how many people they can rescue in the coming days. Um, Tomorrow on the briefing, very much a lighter note, I would say. We're going to have comedian Sam Simmons who's just been posting his phone number so people can call him for an hour a day to feel better about lockdown.
1: Listener.